We continue our series of studies this evening with lessons that have been entitled Worthy to Suffer. It's a study of persecution of God's people from the past, the present, and what we may eventually face in the future. And this was a suggested topic, and I think it's a very relevant and timely subject. As we said, it, uh, as we continue to witness very disturbing changes in our society almost daily, that very well may bring persecution to the righteous in our lifetime. Uh, at least we may see it escalate and intensify. And when we talk about persecution in our study, uh, we want to think about uh, just what that involves. We, we want to uh, understand that we uh, are talking about the persecution of God's people, the righteous, which Jesus said, and as we looked in our lesson this morning, from the blood of Abel forward. We see that. Uh, as we look at our lesson tonight, we look at perilous times will come. It was predicted by the apostles at the end of the first century. This morning we went from the beginning of time up through uh, the first century. And when we talk about persecution, we're talking about any type of hostility experienced from the world as a result of one's identification of being a disciple of the Lord. And we said that's a, a far-ranging uh, list of things that that could involve from verbal harassment, uh, discrimination in education or employment in the workplace, uh, in the buying and selling of goods. It could involve legal prosecution. It could involve scourging or beating, physical torture or confinement or imprisonment. It would include rape or slavery, or it could involve death. These are examples of persecution that we'll be talking about in our lesson that the people of God face. As we said this morning, we begin emphasizing the fact that God's people have been persecuted from, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 24 and 25, from the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel. And we saw that persecution. Uh, we know why Abel was persecuted. When you look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, as we did this morning, we have divine commentary upon why righteous Abel was murdered. He said Cain, who was of the evil one, slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother's was righteous. He was of the evil one. We said that there's a great conflict going on and we see it from the foundation of the world. In the third chapter of Genesis, when God uh, cursed Satan, he talked about two seeds his seed, and the seed of woman. He said there'd be enmity, conflict between the two. We see the victory in that statement as what would come as the Christ, the seed of woman, would eventually crush his head. Though Satan would bruise his heel, it would not be but a minor blow. And that was when he put Jesus on the cross. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, he crushed Satan's power. But in that, we also see the, the long history that would unfold of the conflict between God and Satan and, and how that Satan would use everything in his powers, the prince of this world, to fight against the Christ and to keep him from coming to this world. When he couldn't keep him from coming to this world, he tried to destroy him. And when he couldn't destroy him by having Herod kill all the babies, he tried to tempt him and, and trap him. And when he couldn't do that, eventually he crucified him and thought he'd won. But he was only raised from the dead 
as God had planned all along. But the great conflict still goes on. If we think about passages like Revelation 12, uh, we have at the end of that chapter, Satan being enraged, the dragon, the, the serpent of old, who has uh, was enraged and went off to wage war with the people of God and those who would hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. And that still goes on today. When we think about our lesson this, this evening, uh, perilous times will come. These things were predicted at the end of the, uh, toward the end of the first century in the 60s AD when Paul was in his imprisonment, second imprisonment in Rome. He made this statement as he wrote his dear friend and son in the faith, Timothy. He said, but know this, that last days will come. Perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Persecution of God's people was present then. Paul says it's going to intensify. It's going to escalate in severity due to the hardness of men's heart. Perilous times, difficult times were going to come. And some of this would come under the rule of the Roman emperor uh, there at the time that um, uh, Paul was living. Uh, we see Nero served as emperor from 65 to 68 and caused a great persecution of the Christians, especially around and in the city of Rome. But this time, Christians were known as a distinct group. First, they were just saw as an offshoot of Judaism, but now they're being seen as a distinct group. During the reign of Nero in Rome, uh, we find that Rome experienced a great devastating fire. Much of the city was burned. And some had blamed the emperor Nero uh, because he was known for his brutal tyranny. And in order to avert suspicion of himself of having set Rome on fire, he accused the Christians of starting the fire. Tacitus tells us in history that multitudes of Christians were convicted and their deaths were made subjects of sport. Uh, they were covered with hides of wild beasts and worried with dogs. Some of them were nailed to crosses and some were set on fire and used to light the night as torches. These things took place during the life of Paul and thereafter. It was during this time that Paul was in prison in Rome that Nero was emperor. And he writes to him, there in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, he said, The time will come when they'll not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers. And they'll turn their ears away from the truth and they'll turn aside to fables. He said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. The persecution of God's people was present. Paul would die there at the hands of the Roman Empire. And it would intensify and it would escalate in severity. Perilous times were coming. Some of this would be seen under the emperor Domitian who ruled from 81 to 96. 
Domitian was a very cruel and worthless ruler, according to his story. Had a very jealous temper. He caused hundreds of believers to be put to death. We're told that one of them was his own cousin. Many were banished and exiled and their property confiscated. They were told to worship him as a god and their statues of him with his heel upon the world as though he was ruler of all things. And he wanted to be worshipped as a god as many of the emperors did, but he enforced it. Christians would be brought, and all they had to do, they were offered to offer a pinch of incense to the gods and to worship the emperor, and they'd be spared. All they had to do was renounce their faith in Jesus Christ to do that, that they might live. They were beaten, they were tortured. Many of them were executed when they would not give up their faith and be faithful to the Lord. When you look at Domitian, we see that at this time, uh, John was exiled to Patmos. And it was around the mid-90s that Christ, through John, warned in the Revelation of the things that would shortly take place. Revelation chapter 1, 1 through 3. He warned the church at Smyrna that some of them were going to be cast into prison. They were going to be tested. They were going to have tribulation. But they were encouraged to be faithful unto death. Many times we quote that and we think about it just being faithful till we grow old and die. That's not what he's talking about there. Of course, it's true. We need to be faithful all of our lives. But the point is, they were going to face death. And he said, you be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. At Pergamum, Antipas, the faithful servant, had already been put to death. He'd already been martyred. Revelation 2 and verse 13. While in the Spirit, John was able to see things that were to take place, things that were near at hand to take place, the perilous times that were coming. And in chapter 6, he saw those slain because of the testimony which they had maintained. Souls under the altar, those who had been beheaded. In chapter 7 and verse 14, he saw those there. He was asked who they were. He said, you know, Lord. He said, these are those who come out of the great tribulation." washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The word tribulation there is a strong word. The word tribulation there is a word that, that, that means to be mashed with pressure as within a vice. And that's what they were going to face and the decisions that they were going to have to make that they were going to be faithful to God. You remember in the vision that John had that he saw the scroll that was sealed up with seven seals that no one could open. And he began to cry because no one could open it. And yet, he was told not to weep because there was one who could open it. And that was the Lion of Judah. He turns to see, no doubt a lion, but he sees a lamb standing as if slain, which is a symbol of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who had been crucified and yet he's now standing alive. Jesus said to John, back in John chapter 1, I was dead, but I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. And here's a picture of him standing. And you remember his praise, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain, and it purchased with God by thy blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and it made them kingdom and priests. And he starts opening those seals. 
And you remember the first opening of the first four seals brings forth a vision of four horsemen. And those four horses describe what was going to come in a picture. You remember the first horse was a white horse coming forth with a rider who had a, had a bow and he was going forth to conquer and to conquer. And this represents Christ and the gospel as he would go forth conquering men according to God's eternal plan. But there's going to be consequences to that. There are going to be actions taken by those who hated the truth and those who didn't want to hear it. You remember they was followed closely by a red horse whose rider had a sword which represented the persecution of the saints which quickly followed the preaching of the truth and brought the saints and, and the world into conflict. The same conflict that had been going on from the beginning, from the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel onward. And it was going to intensify. There was another horse that followed. It was a black horse with a rider who held scales. And this represented the discrimination in labor and business, which added to the suffering of the Christians and caused them grief and woe. Tribulation, mashed with pressure as within a vice. And behind it came another horse, a pale horse, and its rider was death and Hades followed. This represented the judgments that would fall upon society as a result of the pagan rejection of the divine message. And as a result, even then, many times the Christians would suffer because the righteous suffer right along with the wicked and the things that come upon the nations of men. All these things were coming. Persecution, perilous times would come. Perilous times didn't come. We see it from all through the Ananasian period. This is the period from uh, when we see from the first century on up through about 325 and the Nicene Council, which we'll talk about in, in just a little while. In those years was some very perilous times under the Emperor Trajan, who ruled from 98 to 117. We read that Pliny, a governor up in Bithynia, had wrote this emperor and called, uh, called Christianity a superstition. And he expressed his concern about these Christians to the emperor. He said the temples of the heathen gods are almost forsaken because of Christianity. The word was spreading. People were obeying Christ. And like they had done in the time that Paul was in Ephesus, they were no longer buying the, uh, the trinkets of the idols and no longer were they buying animals to sacrifice to the gods. And he makes mention of that. He said that the people who made a living by selling animals and sacrificed to the gods had suffered a great loss. And he asked instructions as to how to treat these Christians. What do they need to do about it? Well, Trajan replied that they ought to be left alone unless the prosecutors uh, would come and give their names. But he said if convicted, they would be given the opportunity to renounce their faith in Christ. And if they refused, they were to be punished. That seemed like he was... Uh, pretty forgiving there at first, but all this did was open the door for the wholesale persecution of Christians by wicked men who would falsely accuse and testify against the Christians. And they did. A prominent martyr during the reign of Trajan was a man by the name of Ignatius of Antioch. Tradition tells us he was a student of the Apostle John and an elder in the church at Antioch. We're told that he was taken to the amphitheater in Rome around 108 A.D. and he was thrown to wild beasts and they devoured his flesh. 
another emperor that followed, Aurelius. He was described as a vicious ruler. And he poured out bitter persecution upon the followers of Christ. He was determined to restore the ancient religious practices of old Rome and the old Roman way and regarded Christians as innovators. He saw them as a problem and tried to suppress them by force. And he used many cruel ways of punishing them and putting them to death. Polycarp was an elder at the church of Smyrna and he was monitored during his reign. We're told that he was brought before the governor and called upon him to curse the name of Jesus Christ. And we're told that he said, six and eighty years I've served and he's done nothing but good to me. How could I curse my Lord and my Savior? And in 108, they burned him to death. There were others who were very cruel, but I, the most formidable and systematic of all the persecutions in this period was waged by Domitian in 303, or Diocletian. Diocletian sought to exterminate Christianity and restate the ancient order of worship. Hurlbut, in his story of the Christian church, describes Diocletian's actions. He says, in a series of edicts, it was ordered that every copy of the Bible that could be found was to be burned and that all church buildings were, that were erected were to be torn down and that all who would not renounce Christianity should lose their citizenship and be outside the protection of the law. And some places Christians were assembled in their meeting houses and the building set upon fire in which they burned to death within the walls. And some of these period pictures describe that. They were thrown to wild beasts, killed in every torturous way. Finally, rest from persecution came during the reign of Constantine. In 313 AD, Constantine issued his Edict of Toleration. By this, by law, Christianity was sanctioned as the official worship of the Empire of Rome. This stopped the persecution from the pagan government, but now a new conflict came, and it was over doctrine. To calm this controversy, Constantine called a council of church overseers, and they all met up at Nicaea and Thynia, and it was presided over by the emperor. And the result was a formal statement came out known as the Nicene Creed. Christianity now had become a state religion and civil religious government, civil and religious government was coming together. It caused big problems. Departure from the faith as predicted by the Apostle Paul was well on its way and strange doctrines started to arise. Uh, men who claimed to follow truth and yet just wanted a position and how, which was a church that was hand in hand with the government. So the ceasing of persecution was a blessing in one way, but the establishment of Christianity as a state religion became a curse. In time, it'd bring further persecution. In this time, not from the Roman Empire, but from those who claimed to be the church, who had perverted the, the truth of God and the divine government of the church. History shows the result of this was the rise of papal power in the Roman church. 
with Christianity now being made the state religion, ambitious, worldly men, sought office in the church for social and political influence, and people became Christians simply by saying that they wanted to be one. Drastic changes in organization led not only to an ecclesiastical hierarchy with now the Pope being the head. Now men are looking to just a mere man as the head of the church rather than Jesus Christ who has all authority. Drastic changes in the church started taking place and strange doctrines and practices started to appear. Doctrines like penance and sprinkling for baptism and extreme unction and mass transubstantiation and purgatory and celibacy, a separate priesthood, abstaining from certain foods, all these things found nowhere in the Scriptures. Now they were appearing as doctrine. And in 606, Boniface III was named by the emperor the universal bishop or the pope. The result was that the church entered into the Dark Ages. Catholic churches felt that they only had the right to interpret the Scriptures to the people. You could not read the Bible on your own. You could not teach the Bible on your own. You cannot know what God's will for you is apart from the church and its teaching. They discouraged the reading of the Bible to the people. And therefore, they burned the copies of the Scriptures that were written in the common language of the people. They didn't want the people to read it. If they did, they'd see the erroneous practices of the church. Papal power led to power and control and to the inquisitions. Inquisition, the word itself, simply means uh, questioning or interrogation. But these were ecclesiastical processes of the Roman church set up to discover and to punish what they called heresy. If they found somebody who was teaching something, doing something that was opposed to the church, they would bring them in and they would question them many times under great torturous questioning and interrogation. And if they wouldn't recant, they faced great punishment. The Albigny in southern France, slaughtered by Pope Innocent III. It's ironic that he took the name Innocent. His statement was that these Albigenses, anyone who attempts to construe a personal view of God, conflicts with the church's dogma, must be burned without pity. And burn them they did. In 1208 to 1226, southern France, the Roman Catholic Church slaughtered approximately 20,000 cities, not citizens, 20,000 citizens on July the 22nd, 1209. You think about all the people. That died. How many of these people were true disciples of Jesus Christ? Members of the church? God only knows. But those who did these things, backed by the power of Satan, made no discrimination. 
of those who would oppose the teaching of the Catholic Church. The, the, the people in Bizet's France were slaughtered simply because they were standing against what they knew to be false. From the blood of Abel, God's people had been persecuted. For doing what? For doing what's right. He said Abel was killed by Cain who was of the wicked one and was murdered because he was righteous. The righteous had always been persecuted. Reform was trying to be made at times in the 1300s. John Wycliffe comes along and he opposes the authority of the Pope, the wickedness of the clergy and many of the doctrines of the Roman Church and he produced a translation of the Bible into English. He translated the Latin Vulgate into the English language that the people spoke. It had a, made a great enlightenment among the people who could now read the scriptures, many of them for the first time in their lives for themselves. But the Roman church hated his influence so much that even several years after his death, they dug up Wycliffe's body, burned it to ashes, and scattered the ashes on the Avon River because of their detest for his work in promoting the truth. They hated what he had done. They were still at work against God and against those who would be righteous. Perilous times were now all through from the first century and they were continuing. We've seen it from the blood of Abel. All of God's righteous have been persecuted. In 1481 to 1483, the Roman Catholic inquisitors burned at the stake at least 2,000 people during the first two years of the Spanish Inquisition. 2,000 just in the first two years. Many others received just indescribable torture. I'm not going to go into the details. There's many books that you can read, and I'll give you references to it if you want to. This is not the place to describe how they persecuted people and how they tortured them, but all of them are terrible, some beyond mentioning in, in this audience. People have faced this all through the years. We think it could never happen to us. It's been going on since the blood of Abel. Later, under Henry VIII, King of England, we find that England was the mainstay of Catholic system and the Pope conferred upon King Henry the title of Defender of the Faith. I think that's a title even the King of England still wears today. He was really pushing for Catholic doctrine, teaching, and enforcing it through persecution. But later, in 1534, wishing to secure a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, his wife of 20 years, he requested a divorce and an annulment, and it was denied by the Pope of Rome, and therefore Henry separated the English church and its rule from the Pope, and the Parliament declared Henry the head of the Church of England. But the church retained much of the same ritual and form of Catholicism, and also its persecution. One of the men who stood up during that time was William Tyndale. Despite Roman, the Roman church and the laws of the King of England, 
Tyndale translated the Greek text into an English version of the New Testament. And he told one of the religious leaders of that day, he said, if God spare my life, I will cause a boy that drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. That was his goal. And he learned to read it and he learned to translate and he produced a New Testament in the language of the people. But he made a lot of enemies doing it. And not only did he translate the scriptures in the language of the people, but he wrote uh, different things concerning the king and, and in opposition to, to King Henry's divorce, stating that it was unscriptural. And he was a wanted man. Many times he would just slip through from being in prison tortured but copies of this New Testament was being printed and it was being caught up by the people many of them paying nearly years wages just to obtain a copy they were smuggling them in in barrels of flour and boats of cloth and people were risking their lives just to have a copy of the scriptures sometimes groups would go together so that they could could afford to have one copy of the scriptures and meet in secret to read it. Finally, William Tyndale was invited in by a friend or who he thought was a friend and he was betrayed. And they took him and on October the 6th, 1536, he was strangled and burned at the stake. But before they strangled him, he cried out, May the Lord open the King of England's eyes. And then they executed him. During this Reformation period, 1550 through 1560, the Roman Catholic Church slaughtered at least 250,000 Dutch Protestants by the way of torture, hanging, burning during this 10-year period. Then came along Mary, Queen of England, better known as Bloody Mary. And she got her name, her nickname uh, for a reason. Mary came and she was uh, trying to restore uh, the Catholic Church where uh, her father, Henry VIII, uh, she was the daughter of, of Henry and and Catherine of Aragon. And she was crowned with great ceremony. But as soon as she uh, became queen, she wanted to restore Catholicism to the delight of the Pope. And she, uh, in her efforts, carried this out by force. And many people were slaughtered who opposed Catholic doctrine and strove to see uh, the Bible in their own language. She had approximately 200 men and women burned at the stake. Others met the axe or imprisonment in the Tower of London. But it wasn't just in England that these things were going on. It was going on all over the world. Over in France in 1572 on Bartholomew's Day, there was a massacre. We read that King Charles IX of France under the sway of his mother Catherine was convinced the Huguenot uh, Protestants were on the brink of revolt and he authorized the murder by the leaders of the Catholic authorities. And in Paris on 
The night of August 24th, 1572, at least 10,000 people were killed in the first three days. Then about 8,000 more were killed as it spread out into the countryside. They said that uh, Charles tried to stop it after he saw all the slaughter in the first three days, but it was too late. And it just kept spreading and about at least another 8,000 were killed. 1618 to 1648, the Thirty Years' War instigated and orchestrated by the Roman Catholic Jesuit order attempted to exterminate all the Protestants of Europe. And historians tell us that many countries in Central Europe lost over half their population. Now these are statistics that you don't read very much in history books. You have to go to old history books to find this. It's not being taught in school. But it happened. People think it can happen again. People of God have been persecuted. From the blood of Abel forward, they've been persecuted. In 1685, French Roman Catholic soldiers slaughtered approximately 500,000 French Protestant Huguenots at the order of the Catholic King Louis XIV of France. People by this time were trying to get away from the persecution. They wanted to come over to the new world, the new land of liberty. And there were new colonies of England that had been set up there. But in the pre-revolutionary war days, the well-known church was the established church, the Church of England. All other groups were looked upon in disfavor. And persecutions against them in some form or another was seldom absent. Persecution followed. Who had set up these colonies? England had. What was the church in the Anglican church? The established church. And in 1642, they had an act of uniformity. It was enacted in order to preserve the, the purity of doctrine and unity of the church. And we're not talking about the true church. We're talking about this church that was governed by those who were going to persecute those who didn't agree with their false doctrine. And all ministers were to conform to the order and the constitution of the Church of England as a result of this act. No man could preach funeral or baptize or perform any duties as a minister unless he was ordained and established by the church. That's what was going on in our country. Also many times people think, oh, this has always been the land of liberty. People were looking for liberty. And when people finally receive liberty, they take it for granted. Thing it's always been that way. It's not always been that way. It wasn't that way when they first came here. In fact, you find that the clergy of the Church of England ruled the affairs of the colonies for many years. If you didn't come to the services, to their worship, and obey, and do what they say, and believe what they said believe, teach what they said teach, you'd be fined just for not attending. Find a shilling or a pound of coffee which was like money then. No one was allowed to sell his tobacco, cash crop that they had, unless first the, the clergy was paid out of the first and the best of the tobacco. Non-conforming dissenters were whipped, placed in stocks, banished, moved away, and their property confiscated. Sometimes they were executed. Now the Puritans 
of Massachusetts were also those who were involved in, in persecution during the, uh, the colonial times. The Puritans were uh, a group who had received persecution in England themselves, and yet they come and, and they were striving to reform uh, the Church of England. That started back in the late 16th century. And so they came over here to flee persecution, and yet they were intolerant of others, especially the Quakers, who didn't adhere to their beliefs. And on one occasion, especially we note in June 1660, one of the most notable victims of this religious intolerance was a woman by the name of Mary Dreyer. And she was hanged in Boston for repeatedly defying the Puritan law, banning Quakers from the colony. And she was one of four people who were hanged, was known as the Boston Martyr. Now you're looking at the 1660s. It's not very long before the Declaration of Independence. Still not much liberty in the land of liberty. And persecution was going on. You know, the Bill for Religious Freedom, there was one that was passed, or tried to be passed in the assembly, but it, but it failed in 1779. Now, I thought all this freedom started in 1776. There's not a lot of freedom yet. 1779, it failed to pass, and it really wasn't until seven years later to Thomas Jefferson's Bill for Religious Freedom passed. But it wasn't until after the 1800s that the final union between church and state was abolished. And people finally started seeing some freedom of religion. I want to tell you folks, that's only been what? About 200 years that this country has had, just a little over 200 years, that our country has had freedom of religion. That we've been able to meet and pray as we do. Thank you God that we're able to meet without fear of persecution. It's easy to pray about that and not be thankful, truly thankful for it, isn't it? Or to hear somebody say it in a prayer and just let it go in one ear and out the other and not really truly be thankful for what we have. Do we take for granted that we are in a period where there has been a law of persecution of God's people when from the foundation of the world from the blood of Abel on people have faced terrible, terrible persecution. They faced it all the way up to the time of Jesus and they hated Him, the very Son of God. Why? Because they were righteous and Jesus was completely and perfectly righteous. And they crucified Him. And Jesus said, they'll hate you because they've hated me. And they hated them. And they brought them before court. And they persecuted them. And they beheaded them. And Paul said, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure's come. And perilous times are coming. And perilous times did come. And they've continued through history. History shows that though there may be laws and the extent and the degree of persecution, and in some parts of the world they may be spared for a while, it has always returned. Jesus said, You will be hated by all because of my name. 
Do we think it couldn't happen to us? It could very well happen to us. We may go on for another 200 years with a law of persecution. I don't know. I'm not trying to be a prophet. I can't predict what's going to happen. But I want to tell you, there's some disturbing things happening in our country. And what used to be, you'd say, you know, things are changing. Things are changing. And it was a slow change. Now it's a very quick change. You just look at the change that's taken place in the last month. I couldn't hardly finish these lessons or changing it. I've been working on these lessons for the last two, three months. And I could not get finished for changing it. We, it used to be something come up every so often, every few years something come up. It has been every week, almost every day. You read of something. Maybe by the problems of God, it's slow down. But if history follows suit and trends keep going in the way that they're going, it will escalate and it will intensify if it goes that way. And brethren, we need to be ready. As we're going to be looking at this next lesson, Lord willing, tomorrow night, we, as the Bible said, ought not be surprised. Do not be surprised. Peter told those people, don't be surprised at the fire ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. And so we're going to look at persecution in today's world and the growing threat in America. Persecution, we, because we live in a a time where there's a law of persecution in our spot in the world does not mean that there's no persecution in the world. We don't hear about it. You don't hear about it on the news. This is not taught in school. But it's factual. And Lord willing, we'll look at some of that coming tomorrow night. But Jesus said, Matthew 5 and verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God. He promises us that no matter what comes our way, that He is King of kings and He is Lord of lords. That He rules the nations with a rod of iron. When a person will come to Him and be a part of His kingdom, be on His side. We said that there's a great conflict that's been going on from the beginning between the Satan and the seed of woman, seed of man, son of man been going on all these many centuries. And he tells us who the victor's going to be. Which side will you be on? There's going to be a lot of things that we'll give up when we become a Christian. You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. There may come a time that we may have to give all up. You know, they could come, like they've done in many places at other times in the world and even things that are going on even in the world today and they take everything that you got. We could lose our houses, we could lose our cars, we could lose everything. Jesus said, Mark 10, 29, Truly I say unto you, there's no one who's left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, <clears throat> will not receive a hundred times as much now in this present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children in farms, along with what? Persecution. But in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus says, no matter what comes your way, if you'll be faithful to me, I'll give you eternal life. I'll give you a crown of life. 
Are you willing to stand and make that dedication to the Lord? That's the only way that you can be saved is to come to Jesus. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You've not come to him. Repent and being baptized, you can do that tonight. Be on the Lord's side. Be ready for whatever comes. Won't you come right now while we're standing and saying?